Thanks for tuning in. So this episode is a little, was very interesting and it felt good for me to do because it was totally organic and it's raw. So you have to forgive some of the sound quality in the beginning, but it it, it gets better. But the content is something I really want you to focus on. And this is about addiction and it is one man's story, but It's safe to say this one man speaks for a lot of people out there. And this was sparked because of a conversation that I had with one of my clients. When I say clients, you guys know I have a service called The Trusting Ear. So if you need somebody to talk to or you know someone who needs someone to talk to, whether it be they're going through a big decision in their life, a relationship needs some help, or they're just struggling with the quarantine, they just need an objective professional ear to listen to. Send them or take yourself to the trusting ear. That is the trusting ear at the trusting ear.com and let me help. So anyway, I was speaking with a client who relapsed. And so that sparked a thought in my mind about the importance of addiction during a time like this. So I did what I had to do, reached out and got my guy, Mike Knoll, to share his story. So without further ado, take a listen. Hello and welcome to the I Am Necessary podcast. As always, this is your guy and host, Marcel. And today I have another one of those treats for you. This is something that is totally organic and I have on the phone with me Mr. Mike Knoll right so we're going to get into some addiction he has a story to tell right and long story short how I came across Mike is I was thinking of doing a podcast and I wanted to dive into the realm of addiction so literally I went on Instagram hashtagged addiction and that opened up And so a lot of things start popping up on my plate. And the question that you probably have that Mike had for me was why him? And it's just the most random thing. He plays golf, right? I'm going to say play golf. I don't know what his handicap is. If it's so, you know, I know he hits golf balls. (laughs) I know he hits golf balls and he's a baseball guy. So those of you who know me know that about me so that's all I needed to see and the fact that he had a story so here we are like what 48 hours later he agreed and we you know we chatted a little bit and got comfortable with each other and just like that here we are so like to introduce you to my guy Mr. Mike No. what's up man what's going on Marcel how you doing man <laughs> yeah I was pretty curious I got the message and um planet aligned um i had just made seven years sober and uh the funny thing is i had i I post every year uh on my anniversary and um this year i posted on instagram with the before and after picture and i didn't really use too many hashtags i think i used hashtag sobriety and a couple others and mind you, not an hour after I posted, I literally got a phone call from a 1-800 number asking me about if I need to go to treatment or something. <laughs> well, the system works. Oh, okay. I guess it works. It definitely works. And then, like, all of a sudden, you know, people, um, like, reposting my post on all these sobriety things. And I'm like, what? Is, I, I didn't know this was a thing or anything like that. But I'm glad you found me. Um, I, uh, I'm definitely a talker. I like to tell my story. Perfect. Um, and uh, sobriety is my life. Like I, I definitely try to live the example of of, of hope and what uh, what we can become. You know, um, I just made seven years sober, uh, December fifteenth, um, and uh, it's been a long journey. And uh, if you would have told me. I'd be where I'm at today doing what I do. Um, when I got sober, I would have laughed in your face and told you to fuck off. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, I mean, if you would have asked me to dream what I wanted when I got sober, um, I wasn't 
Um, I started drinking as a teenager. I grew up in New Orleans, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. And, um, I mean, early young teens. You know, Mardi Gras was a thing. Yeah. And we did a big thing with the family all the time. You know, it's a, it's a season. It's not a day. Mm-hmm. There is Mardi Gras day, but it's a season. You know, it's, it's, it's a month long, and we have parades all the time. And uh, one of my first experiences, um, and they all followed the same uh, same stories. I went with uh, one of my uncles. Um, my dad sent us. He said I could have a daiquiri. And I was like probably 13 years old. And uh, we go in there to get a daiquiri. And uh, of course I wanted the largest daiquiri. Mm-hmm. And I wanted a shot on top. Not that I ever had one prior to that, but I knew I needed the largest one. Now, how, how old were you? 13. Okay, 13, yeah. All right. And uh, I knew I needed the largest one, and I needed something extra on top. How I knew that, I don't know. But uh, so I got it, and I drank it, and uh, we came back to where the family was, and hanging out with my brother and his friends. And I I downed that real quick, and then started drinking some beer with my brother's friends. And next thing you know, you know, I'm part of the group. You know, the way the world lifted off my shoulders, and I've arrived, and. My brother's friends are laughing with me, and um, it's a great time, and started feeling all good and warm inside. Next thing you know, everything started spinning. I don't know where I'm at, and I wake up outside my, my parents' home, uh, puking my guts up, praying to God not to let me die. <laughs> wow. And, uh, boom, alcohol poisoning. And uh, it was embarrassing, and... Uh, it was a really bad pain, you know. Uh, I was in bed for two or three days. My parents blamed my brother because him and his friends fed me the beers after the daiquiri, <laughs> and <laughs> as if it was their fault. And uh, they made my brother clean me up and put me in the shower because it was his fault. And then uh, I stayed in bed for like two or three days. And I vowed I'd never touch alcohol. And the way my parents looked at it was he. Uh, he He's young. He doesn't know how to handle his alcohol, and um, he learned his lesson. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I came from a good family. I, my parents aren't drunks. You know, they're not addicts or alcoholics or anything like that. You know, my dad would drink here and there during ball games and stuff like that. Never ever was a problem. Never hung out at bars. Um, and what I knew then was that's just what happened in New Orleans. Teenagers and young adults drink too much do stupid shit, get sick, and they keep moving. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that was my thing. I kept doing it periodically. Um, you know, it would go maybe four months, six months, and then uh, I'd drink again. And I'd drink until I passed out and puked. And, and drinking was it. Um, I do even remember being, actually in fifth grade, I, uh, I hurt my arm broken arm or hurt my shoulder or something and they had given me pain meds and I remember taking them and feeling just this rush of like just euphoria over my body and how good that made me feel but it also made me puke mm. <clears throat> and I didn't like that but it was a weird like wait I want this feeling but I get sick when I do it and uh, and, and pills became something later on where I knew I could take something and it would change the way I'm feeling and um, I could not stop taking them. I'd take them until I passed out. And there are all kinds of stories, you know, but right when I started driving, we go to a friend's house. Uh, it's me and, and my two best friends in my car. They're too young to drive. So I'm 15 or 14. And uh, I get some, uh, what, what are they, not Xanax, Valiums. Mm-hmm. I got Valiums from somebody and, and a pint of vodka. And uh, I drank all the vodka <laughs> and took uh, more than my healthy share of Valium. Wow. And uh, next thing you know, I pass out. They're driving the car around. My dad's logging the mileage um, on the car so he knows how many miles I drove because I'm so young. So he wants to make sure you know I'm going where I'm telling him I'm going and tracking the gas. Well, I wake up at a friend's house because my buddies drove my car to another friend's house 
and I remember a little bit of it. And then we go to their house, I wake up the next morning, and I'm like, what the fuck happened? And uh, my mileage is all fucked. <laughs> 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 I'm like, what? Wait, y'all drove my car, now I gotta go home, come up with a story. And, and that was just, that was it, man. It happened like that all the time. My dad would let me drink. And my parents never thought I had a problem. Mm-hmm. My dad would put on these charity golf tournaments and, um, you know, literally through the New Orleans Police Department. And I'm playing in the tournament, again, I'm a sophomore, junior in high school. And Pat O'Brien's sponsored it. Mm. So he's like, you can have a hurricane. I don't even think we got to the ninth hole. I drank mine, my brother's, and started drinking the rest of them. And I literally fell on my face trying to tee off. Wow. At 15 years old. And then I'm in the cart. I puke outside the cart, you know, as my brother's driving the cart because it's my brother's four years older than me. We're playing with my dad's two friends and us, and they're just, they're laughing. They're thinking it's a 15-year-old that can't handle his alcohol, so... My mom had to come get me. I'm mm-hmm. sitting in the car, puking outside the car. And again, it was, ah, oh, it's, it's, it's no big deal. He'll learn his lesson. And uh, I never, I played sports. I was, you know, I got scholarships to college. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. a bad student. Uh, I did, did stupid shit like any kid does. Right, we all uh, did. <laughs> but uh, nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. And, um, you know, I, I, I tried. I went to a private Catholic school and tried to find God and found God for a little bit senior year. Tried not to do any drugs or alcohol, and then the last day of senior year for uh, senior day, you know, I go and drink and smoke weed and let loose and everybody, you know, I was like, oh, rolling back. <laughs> and uh, that, that was just the story. Same thing. College. I vowed. I, I went to a, a, a Jesuit college in uh, Mobile, Alabama. And I vowed I wasn't going to drink or do drugs my freshman year because it's the, it's the right about face. I'm trying to be a good person. I'm trying to move forward in life and, and do it all right. I had my own business at the time, uh, mowing lawns and doing landscaping and everything to put me through college. And uh, I made it up to Christmas break. And uh, during Christmas break, or the day before we went home for Christmas break, we went out and decided out, you know, I didn't decide, I just, someone passed me a joint, smoked some weed, started drinking, next thing you know, till, till the night ends and right. passed out. Now I have alcohol poisoning again, sick as a dog and can't even drive my own truck home from, from Alabama home. So uh, a good friend that lived in the world that went to school with me, she drove my truck home and we left her car at school. And no one... No one thought it was a problem, man. That's what I was going to ask you. From 13 all the way up to there, not one person said, hey, man. I own my own business. Mm-hmm. I, I bought my own truck. My, my parents didn't have money. <clears throat> I bought my own truck by then. I uh, put myself, my spending cash, my books, everything that my scholarship didn't um, cover, I covered from, from the business. Um, honor, honor student every single semester. You know, so there was no outside negative consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Other than a bump or a bruise and an embarrassing story. And for the most part, the more embarrassing, the funnier it is and the more people like it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, that age? Yeah. And, um, you know, kept going through college and then it started to set in. Um, I got into... Uh, Cutting the selling things, mm-hmm. and I had a, I had a, uh, had a conscience, right? So I'm trying to be this good, upstanding, godlike person, right? But then, for some reason, I want to do something bad too, and it was always this big dichotomy for me. And uh, I, uh, I blew out my ACL playing intramural football, and the, uh, a person around me, I'll say it like that since we're on the podcast, Um, lost his weed hookup, and he was telling me about it, and I'm like, I don't, never bought it, like, I'd I'd smoke if somebody had it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm like, dude, 
I got some stoner friends back home. I was like, I bet you they can get some shit. And then my business mind kicked in. I'm like, wait a minute. So I make a phone call, find out it can work out. And I'm like, maybe if it doesn't touch my hands, it's all good. I'll just be the money man. <laughs> Next thing you know, now we're trafficking stuff from Louisiana to Alabama. And it got pretty out of hand. Um, and you fast forward a couple Fast forward like a year, year and a half, and now we got guns drawn inside the drug dealer's home. Mm-hmm. You know, because somebody's trying to rob us, and uh, that was wild. Um, we had the uh, the suppliers, who were some pretty heavy dudes, um, literally followed me to my house, and uh, I had to get them the money, and luckily I had the money, and. Uh, I didn't end up having a problem. Um, actually, I did. You know, sister's life was threatened, and I got all scared, and there's a break-in point. Like, do I want to be in this game, or don't I? And uh, I didn't want to be in that game. And uh, luckily, nothing happened. And I kind of got out of that and got into something else. And next thing you know, I started doing steroids, because for some reason, I'm not feeling right inside, right? Mm-hmm. I always need something to make me feel different because I'm uncomfortable all the time. Next thing you know, you know, because I'm insecure. I don't like the way I feel. You know, I have an inferiority complex on top of an ego problem at the <laughs> same time. And, and, I, and I got into steroids and started doing that. And next thing you know, I ballooned up and the girls are liking me and the dudes are liking me because, you know, they want to get games like me. Yeah, you're the guy. No, mm-hmm. we're supplying all these people and blah, blah, blah. And that blew up, you know, I get in a fight one night at a bar, um, come back to school, wreak havoc at school, and uh, broke the door off my uh, dorm room, and I wake up the next morning and there's a note on the floor, and it's the dean, and uh, I mean, I broke the front door, <laughs> everything in the lobby, you know, I mean, I just went batshit crazy, and really what it was is, I wasn't being accepted into a group, and I felt uh, inferior, and they didn't like that. Mm-hmm. So I was in a school with, with all these rich kids, and I was trying to fit in, and I wasn't fitting in, and I figured if I'm not going to fit in, I'm going to fight you, and I'm going to win. And uh, I caused hell, man. It wasn't wasn't the right thing, but it's what I went through. And I caused hell, and, and the dean brought me in and pretty much told me, you need to tell me the truth and you get kicked out. And again, another crossroads. And I'm like, I can't get kicked out of college because I don't want to be embarrassed, you know? And uh, don't want to let anybody down and this, that, and the other. And she gave me a chance. She, she literally told me, if you tell me the truth, I'll help you. I trusted her. I told her the full truth. Mm-hmm. She got me help. And uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm going to anger, anger management. And I have some, some sanctions put on me. I can't go can't go, uh, I can't stay at school on the weekends, I have to go home, I can't go out, I can't get in trouble again, so I buckled down, and, and I did the right, right about face, and my grades never suffered, and um, I finished up school, you know, honor society in economics, graduated with two degrees, get out of school, and I'm eternally grateful for her, and, and, and the people around me, because they helped me, and uh, again, Still not thinking I have a problem, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? There's, there's just outside circumstances. Shit right. changing, you know. Um, and uh, end up moving out to San Francisco after college for a job opportunity, and uh, the real world hit. And next thing you know, I'm in the bars drinking every day. Stress is starting to pile on, and you know this anxiety thing. And about how about how old are you now? Okay. 22. I got the, I left college, graduated in four years, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm in San Francisco, and uh, this whole time through college, there was alcohol, pills, pain pills were a big thing, I got hurt a few times, and absolutely loved them, and I'd take, <laughs> I'd take the prescription and like me split, and I'd get another prescription of the painkillers and take them until I got sick, and then the sickness was just enough to where I don't want to take them anymore. So I 
wouldn't touch pain pills for you know, another six to nine months until you know an injury or a mouthache or something had to happen. And uh, so I moved back here, and next thing you know, you know, I'm at the bar every day drinking. I had no friends. The industry I was in, there was no young people. I was a lone wolf. So I started drinking. Um, met my wife soon after. I moved out here. Found a pill supplier, popping pills, you know. And again, I'm making money. Mm-hmm. I get promoted, moving up in the company. I'm the youngest in my position in the company. So a global organization. I'm getting the titles. I'm getting the money. And I'm still feeling empty inside. And uh, that was a big thing. I thought, like, the title would fulfill me. Mm-hmm. And then I thought the money would fulfill me. Right. And then I thought this girl could fulfill me. And I kept chasing after things. And um, I'd attain them, and I'm not fulfilled. And I'd get there, and I'm like, what the fuck? Like, I just want to feel better. Like, okay, I need more. There's always this, this thing of more. And next thing you know, man, um, I'm drinking every day. Uh, I got introduced to cocaine, and uh, that was that was bad. Mm. And uh, that was the first time, you know, I, I started doing coke almost on a, on a regular basis. And this whole time, I'm on, I'm seeing doctors right now. I'm on Adderall. I'm on Xanax. I'm on Lexapro. You know, I'm on all these meds because. You know, I'm unstable and I'm stressed out and I have this and I have that. Not telling them how much I drink. Right. Not telling them how much coke I'm doing. And you can only imagine the uh, the stories uh, through that. And, uh, you know, the, the whole baseball thing. Uh, one of my worst years was the years that the Giants started winning big. And, <laughs> I, and I had season tickets. Um, and... I mean, I went to 52 games in 2010, and I don't know how many I remember, but I remember that my cab fees were more than my season tickets because I would miss the train that many times to go home. Wow. Like, just go, every time, I'm not going to miss the train tonight, baby. I swear I'm going to make the train. And then we go to the bar, and I miss the train. Or... I pass out in the train. <laughs> That's a funny one. I pass out in the train. Uh, I forget the situation. My phone might die or something. I miss my stop. I go south for like 30 minutes. And now i got to get in touch with my wife so that she can come pick me up 30 minutes south because she's not off of work yet or something. Mm, God uh, bless her. Oh, God. <laughs> she's a saint. And it would just be shit. It was all fun and games at first because she liked to party too, mm-hmm. not with the drugs, but you know, go out to the clubs, drink, no big deal. Right. I mean, I'm coming home puking at least once a week. Next thing you know, two years before I get sober, um, I tear my esophagus and bleed internally. And uh, it had nothing to do with alcohol or drugs. Wow. It was work. You know, it was stress. It was, it was an, I convinced myself it was an ulcer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't think it was a problem, you know, because I'm winning awards at work. I'm getting bonuses at work. You know, I'm still traveling. I still have opportunity. Like, you know, alcoholics are the guys in the gutter. You know, not not me. I wear a suit to work. You know, um, you know, <laughs> this one time, a very large um, department store, very high end, also <laughs> me, but. Uh, I bow to myself. I mean, I would literally go to the bar 5.30 in the morning, doesn't open until 6, knock on the door, go in, take a couple shots, and then go to work. That was like a typical day. That, that's just the way to get started, you know? Not to mention I took Adderall when I, my alarm went off, so I could actually wake up. And uh, I go to this, this event, it's like 200 people, I'm the head of it, and uh, it's a split shift. I go in the morning, it starts at like 9.00. I do my thing, I leave, and I'm like, all right, going home, I'm going to just take a nap, and then I'm going to go back. I'm not going to go to the bar. Can't sleep. Not taking a nap. I'm like, I'll go to the bar just for a drink, you know, just a drink. Next thing you know, I'm at the bar. It gets too loose. Now, Now I'm drunk. I know I'm drunk. Now I need to level myself out. So what do I do? 
the third one. And uh, I'm like, shit. Now I gotta go perform in front of 200 people and I'm drunk and coked out. This is not gonna work out. I go, I nail it. The next morning we had an email saying, oh, this is the greatest event. You know, we want Michael back. Like, everything was wonderful. It was like the best event we've had with you guys. Like, make sure he's back every time. And I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. it's that really perfect. So that was the thing. I didn't have the negative consequences. So right. I never really thought it was, was the problem. And then, you know, uh, I tear my esophagus, and then now I'm starting to have more and more mental breakdown and more and more physical problems. And uh, I thought Coke was my problem at the time, so I, I quit the Coke, and now it's just drinking and the pills. And now I can't sleep, so they prescribe me Ambien, and now I'm drinking all day. I come home, I pop a bunch of Xanax and a bunch of Ambien to pass out. And it was getting out of hand, and I just didn't know how out of hand it was until getting sober and being like, holy shit, I should have died a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Like, that combination is deadly. And we're talking, I'm not talking like one or two pills. Like, I'm talking like handfuls. You know, like waking up the next morning and counting the pills and being like, holy shit, like how many did I take last night? Like, this is not cool. And, uh, what ended up happening was I started going down that road just completely feeling like ass and uh, a buddy was getting married and uh, I flew home to New Orleans for uh, his uh, wedding shower and my two best friends they had problems right so they had big drug problems I didn't apparently (laughs) (laughs) so I convinced myself that I was going home and I was going to watch out for my buddy. I was going to be his guardian angel. Yeah. (laughs) Um, I was moving this, I I got there, I surprised my buddy for the wedding shower and I was trying to keep face and next thing you know, me and and my buddy that's got the drug problem, we hook up together and he had a bunch of pills in his truck and I stole them all from him, not all of them, but stole enough to where he didn't notice. Mm-hmm. Took them all that night. Next thing you know, we go out. We don't come home. And uh, I end up going missing the next night and come to on Sunday at like 3.30 in the afternoon in the strip club. Mm-hmm. And uh, the bill for the strip club was astronomical. We didn't <laughs> know about it. So I, I come to and um, I just, I don't know what's going on. And um, next thing you know, we get in a cab, and I'm not thinking anything. My phone's dead. My wife's in California. I'm free and clear. Well, apparently, my family was looking for me, and they thought that we were dead or something. And we pull up around the corner, and there's like 40 people in front of the house, including the police car. And uh, it was just like God came out of the sky and punched me in my stomach. Hmm. And uh, I got on the plane. I had a flight like at six o'clock that afternoon. And a buddy, who's a police officer, that was at the house because they literally thought something like dramatically crazy happened to us. Um, escorted me to the airplane and got me on the flight. And I came home. And uh, I, I woke up the next morning and I found out what Phil was. And I was, I mean, a very nice luxury car. And uh, I'm like, there's no way. There's no way. And, uh, you know, the guilt and the shame and the remorse and everything. And I'm like, oh, man, you know, like I can prove that they drugged me and all this, that, and the other. And, um, but that wasn't enough. I remember going, I went to my a good friend's house the next morning. And uh, we sat in his couches, on his couch. And he put on a speaker tape from a 12-step program. And we were listening to it while we were drinking and taking Xanax. And we're like, oh, my God, this dude knows what's going on. We, we, we need to go to one of those meetings, you know? <laughs> like, we'll go tomorrow. And uh, he gave me some information about it. But, and he had been sober for a year prior. And uh, 
you know, didn't go. And uh, the same buddy's wedding shower, his bachelor party was coming, and I had planned it all. And it was, we were going to go to Vegas and in L.A. And anybody in their right mind would have canceled. But I convinced my wife that I needed to go because it's so-and-so's wedding and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. uh, so I ended up going, and I was so engulfed in just nastiness in my mind, like... I probably should have passed out when I got to Vegas. That's how fucked up I was. I mean, it was a complete two-week bender, just trying to keep it together to just show face at work. And um, we get to Vegas, and uh, you know the story. Mm -hmm. Party hard, and next mm -hmm. thing you know, it's lights out. And um, I remember going to the airport. It was just a night. We were just going in on Thursday. And flying out Friday morning, just all night party until we get to LA. And I, I got to the TSA in Vegas Friday morning, Friday the 13th. And I went to go pull out my wallet, and I was missing my credit card and my license. And it was right there. I knew I was over. I, I did things I said I'd never do. And I said I'd never do them again. And I did them again. And it was the worst sickness. It started setting in. I didn't take anything else. I got on the plane. I luckily got on the plane without a license. Um, called a courier service to pick up my license and my credit card to overnight them to the hotel the next morning that we were going to because I needed them. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get caught, you know? <laughs> and uh, I get to L.A. and we, we pulled down uh, the Sunset Strip to the Lowe's Hotel on uh, on Sunset and I uh, walk into the, the hotel at like 10.30 in the morning and the sickness hit and I puked down in front of me, in front of everybody. And uh, that was the beginning of the end. And uh, stayed sick in the hotel for the next three days. Um, you know, this whole time having suicidal thoughts, like just wanting to kill myself. And I had my last drink on the flight home from, uh, from L.A. Wow. Yeah. I ended up, uh, during that time, I had a, um, an Andean experience, which happened multiple times where I could sleepwalk and not know what happened. And then I'd look at my phone and have pictures on my phone or text messages. And then I'd talk to buddies and they're like, you don't remember what happened last night? <laughs> like, I have no idea. I scared myself. And one of those Andean walks, um, the bartender at the bar that I'd always drink at, um, he was getting sober. And he gave me a card with a number on it, and I put it in my um, suit coat pocket. And for some reason, I remembered that. And I went to my suit coat pocket and found it. And uh, I started Googling on the Internet, like what an alcoholic is. And uh, where can I get help that Monday when I got home? And... Uh, my wife came home and asked me what I wanted to do, and I wanted to kill myself, uh, but uh, that wasn't uh, in the cards that day, and uh, I ended up uh, calling a 1-800 number, mm. and that was the biggest hurdle I've ever jumped in my life. So that was just all you, just saying, it was just you that prompted yourself to actually finally call the number? was I remember growing up in Catholic school there was this thing in the Bible that said if you give up your life you'll find it mm -hmm. and for some reason that was in my head and I prayed a little ultimatum prayer to God and I was just like if you fucking exist and you're who you say you are I'm going to give it up right now and I better find it <laughs> <laughs> wow and that's really what happened. And uh, I asked my wife to, I mean, Grant, I probably hadn't said a prayer and I couldn't tell you how well, you know? Um, and my wife asked me what, what I wanted to do. I said, to go get the rosaries. And we prayed and then I made the phone call. And uh, somebody answered the phone. And he started talking to me and I'm like, surprised. I'm crying. Like, <laughs> yeah. And they're like, okay, well, we can be there in like 45 minutes. I'm like, wait, 
I'm like, uh, okay. And I hung the phone up and I'm like, uh, a stranger's coming to the house telling my wife. And I'm like, I don't think I'm going with him. She's like, you fucking going with him. <laughs> and this stranger showed up in the house and picked me up and he did not look anything like I thought he was going to look. Oh, not at all. And, uh, he picked me up and, and we, we went to get help. And, uh, he told me about this program and told me if I if I did what he said, I wouldn't have to spend twenty or thirty thousand dollars to go to a a treatment center. So that sounds good. Mm -hmm. I got a big bill from that thing that happened that he doesn't know about yet. And I started doing this thing. Um and seven years later I'm sitting here talking to you. Wow. Yeah. Unreal, unreal, man. So, how long were you in "quote unquote" treatment? Uh, so I didn't go to treatment. Okay. Um, I uh, I ended up taking a hiatus from work uh, through disability for three months, and uh, I just uh, went to these meetings every day, sometimes multiple times a day, and these guys told me I needed to go try and find other drunks to help. And uh, I'd call him in the morning and be like, ah, oh, I feel horrible. I don't want to get out of bed. And they're like, put your fucking foot on the ground. Now put your right foot on the ground and put one foot in front of the other. Get the fuck out of the door and go find somebody to help. I'm like, I, I don't know how to do that. They're like, great, get it out. <laughs> and uh, I started going to these meetings and searching for people that were worse off than I that I could help. And... Next thing you know, like, I, I'm not thinking about alcohol anymore. Mm. And next thing you know, like, I'm starting to connect with people and, and going through this process and, you know, starting to, to write some things down and become introspective and, and figure this stuff out. And uh, it was wild. Okay. I, I, I couldn't, couldn't figure out how I wasn't thinking about alcohol, but it wasn't on my mind. Wow. Interesting. That is a, uh, yeah, that's a movie is what yeah. that is. And so let me ask you this, man. Let's start peeling it back a little bit. What is one of the biggest things that happened during your addiction that you probably can't get back? You know, that, that If anything that haunts you like, man, I did that and you know, that's something you can't repair. What What is that thing? Uh, this isn't cliche. This is my true belief. Nothing. Um, I am under the experience, and I just actually had this the other day, that my, my biggest asset is my fuck-ups. Mm -hmm. um, I have a unique set of skills to be able to help people that they say are on help. Mm -hmm. I'm unable to get help, you know? I, I can use the shit that went wrong and the things that I did wrong to help somebody else. I don't, I don't, I don't regret or wish I had something back. Mm -hmm. it's, it's who I am and, and I get to use that as an asset and it's a matter of perspective. Wow. I can easily change that perspective, but um, that's, that's, that's been my way of thinking since day one. And I've been able to use that pragmatically to help other people and people have come to me and told me thank god dude i heard you share that and i never wanted to talk about this or i never thought anybody else went through this and i'm going through it right now and we we get to connect and we get to figure out what what we can do to help them is there any uh i don't even know if you know the answer to this and maybe they are the only ones who can answer this when your parents look at this how, how does that taste to them do they have any regret or what does that taste oh, like so, <laughs> the good thing is I'm in I'm in California there in Louisiana so let's tell you real experience um, my dad my first Christmas after being sober home and I'm, I'm talking with family at the table about sobriety and past stories, he was very upset. 
told me to shut the fuck up pretty much and mm. don't talk about it. I called my sister for Christmas, who we were very close with, um, my first Christmas being sober, which is 15 days sober. Tell her I'm an alcoholic and get help. And she tells me, what the fuck kind of Christmas present is that? Call me, tell me that shit. I don't want to hear that. So that was 15 days in. Now, my dad's best friends and people in the community come to him to come to me mm-hmm. for help. My sister knows where I'm at and knows what I do and has seen my journey. And if people need help, they know where they can come. My dad wants to know when I speak or, you know, well, how can I hear that? But they start asking more and more stories and there's more and more friends and more and more family that have problems. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, it's just like, okay, call, call Michael. He'll, he'll take care of it. So we're very confident and, and appreciative of, mm. of where I'm at now, uh, which it's, it's changed dramatically. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd come in town and I'd start drinking. You know, I'd been drinking on the plane the whole time. And, you know, we're going to breakfast and I'm drinking. We're going to lunch and I'm drinking. And they're always making comments. And uh, there was one thing you didn't do is make comments about my drinking. You know, I did. I'd get nasty. Mm-hmm. You know, tell you mind your own business because I got my stuff under control, you know, which I did not. But, wow. Yeah. So how do you, you know, how is this, this quarantine and all of this stuff, how has that impacted you at all? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think my community needs me and I need them. And there's something to be said about being in person, embracing somebody, um, and being there for the people that I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't, a lot of people I help, I don't, I don't know them until, right. I, until I meet them. You know, I don't, I don't have their phone number to call them to see how they're doing. Mm-hmm. But in my community, I get to see them randomly and meet them. Um, but for me, like, you know, I answer that 1-800 line now, so I, I do that, you know, maybe four or five times a month, and, and that's helped. The lines have been a lot busier, so I get to talk to people, and it's not like a three-minute conversation, it's like an hour-long conversation, because people are in need. Um, you know, I do my damnedest to fight for us to be able to, you know, have in-person gatherings, um, that hasn't really worked too well, but... There's people out there that I have that are breaking the law, mm-hmm. and it's a good thing. Not uh, a very close cousin of mine. He got sober at a road meeting in New Orleans. They broke all the rules. They said, "Fuck it. This is life or death, and and we need this, and people need this." And they met outside in the park every day during quarantine, and the police would show up, and the police had family members that were just like us. Right. And they'd watch, and they'd make sure they were socially distant and had masks on. And they'd show up like every other day, and then they'd show up once a week, and then all of a sudden, they're not showing up, and they're allowing them to have this meeting in the park. Um, it's a needed thing. You know, I'm, I'm meeting people that are getting sober on Zoom. I have no idea how that works. Um, I probably would have gotten sober because I was desperate enough, but um, it's different. Luckily, now in my. In my area, um, I'm wondering of some people meeting meeting up in person, which is just a godsend. Um, you know, it's it's been rough. Um, a cousin committed suicide, John. Um, another friend committed suicide um, two months after him. I lost some lost my grandfather. I lost an uncle. Mm-hmm. Um, and not being able to to go somewhere and hug somebody. And just like that, um, you find different avenues. Zoom works. I've been using my phone just unbearable. I mean, the amount of phone calls that I've been making and getting in touch with people. You know, just trying to make the most of it and, and be of service. You know, find a way to be of help. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing is, is I used to go in prison a lot. And um, thinking about those guys, ain't got nothing. They're in the desert, man. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they have their cell block, and if, you know, there's only one or two guys in there that are 
doing something to, to help their sobriety. That's it. That's all they got. Yeah. Sometimes they're just completely on their own. And you know, the funny yeah. thing is, the funny thing when it comes to this quarantine and people getting claustrophobic and a lot of issues are, are coming up, mental health. And I know a guy who was in solitary confinement and now he's doing work helping people get through this quarantine because he's like, you think this is quarantine? Right. <laughs> right. And so, you know, he equipped people with all you have to do is just have a plan. So every day you schedule now brushing your teeth is something you put on your to do list. It's not something you just happen to do. So when you make this list of things to do, your days have structure, right? And so they're not just happening and you're sitting there like, what am I going to do now? So that's what he said. He said, that's how he survived every day. If it's like, I'm going to do 10 push-ups, and then I'm going to do this and then I'm going to draw or whatever. Next thing you know, it's five o'clock. Right. And so to your point, he's found a purpose in this quarantine and who would ever thought an inmate yeah. is the one who's getting me through, you know, this, this new experience. Maybe I'm like them, and maybe 
I was just a circumstance away from being in there with them. And uh, I came to the thought of maybe these guys that killed my dad's friend, maybe they're, maybe they're sick like me. Mm. How does that happen? Right. You know, like, how, how, how do I go from wanting to bury these inmates underneath the prison to now I'm an advocate for them? And I met, I met fewer men in prison than I have in the real world. Wow. That blows people's minds. And I'm wow. like, I have no idea. Like, I'm not saying they're all like that. Not at all. But I've met fewer men in prison than I have out in the real world. For sure. I can totally, that, that makes sense to me 100%. Yeah. So... What would you tell someone right now who, you know how the universe works, they could stumble across this podcast somewhere out there and they know they, well, they don't know, they need help, but they're on the, on the verge. They, they haven't taken the step. So what would you tell someone who, well, two part, first, what would you tell them? And then what would you tell their loved ones? Because, you know, they say, the alcoholic goes to bed drunk, but the family wakes up with the hangover, right? So, yeah. yeah. What would you tell that addict who has yet to realize he or she is an addict? Hurt them more pain. Hurt them more desperation. Hopefully, hopefully the consequences will get you here. Hopefully, you'll get to a point where you've done enough and you're you're, you're done. You know, um, you, need, you need to get done and concede to your innermost self that you got a problem. And sometimes, it, sometimes that's near death. You know, every, everyone's limits different. Mm-hmm. Mine was pretty high, looking from the outside in. But um, you know, my two best friends—they both got sober. One of them went through cardiac arrest twice. Wow. You know, he should be dead. He was flatlined. Um, but yeah, find pain, find it, and exploit it. Um, I think that uh, that'll get you the way you're going. And and for the for the family, be patient. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, for the for the uh, for the family, you just gotta be patient. Um, a, a a good friend of mine that's got way more sobriety than me up in the 40 years, he said it's simple. If you can have enough patience, there's only one of two answers for a true alcoholic. They're either going to die drunk or they're going to get sober. Mm. You just have to wait it out. Wow. Wow. Incredible, man. This is, I mean, yeah. This is uh, very powerful stuff. And, you know, there is, you know, there's a purpose for you. And sounds like you you found it and you are fulfilling it. You know, you, we never know what we go through is for a reason, right? I always say, you know, sometimes people feel like when they're, the walls are caving in and they feel like they're sinking, right? You are, but you're not sinking. You're being planted. You're being planted. Right. I like that. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah, because sure. I mean, yeah, and I sometimes mean, the Almighty plants his his best seed in the worst soil. It's so true. I mean, it's it's you know the product of the sun. Mm-hmm. Um, it's 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 wild how it all happens, man. And, yeah. And I never knew that that was happening, but I had enough people around me that were being very pragmatic with making me do things and, you know, um, compounding interest. You keep doing these little things and, you know, next thing you know, you're, you're going to blink your eyes and you're not going to believe where you're at. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, that's been my story. I mean, I, in, in sobriety, I've been able to quit my career wow. and go back to college for another degree and start a dream job. Like, it's wild, dude. Incredible. Like, how that happens and it's literally just you know following a little process and 
and trust in God, it, it, it gets way easier. Some people can't fathom trusting God. Trust yourself. Do something and show yourself positive results and trust that so that you can build upon it. And then the next one, build upon that. And the next victory, build upon that. And just keep building upon those victories. And you, you'll be somewhere you could never have dreamt of. Outstanding. My, my, my lifestyle today is, I mean, I talk to friends and they're just like, dude, I wish I could be there. I'm like, dude, just go quit tomorrow. <laughs> go quit your job tomorrow. And then, you know, find out what you really want to do and go after it. Cool, man. So, two things. One thing is, if someone is listening to this, right, and Obviously, if they listen to this and they're they're in this position or they know someone, how do they find you? Well, you can find me on social media if you're looking for me specifically. Mm -hmm. I'm public, so you can just search my name, Michael Noel, probably find me. Um, if you, I mean, I'm giving my phone number right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out there and willing to help, but um, yeah, I mean, you can put my number in the comments. Um, I'm there. Um, but a quick Google search mm -hmm. and a little desire could uh, get you far, you know. Um, I think everyone knows about certain programs. Right. Um, some of them are anonymous, some of them aren't, um, that you can find pretty easily. There's a little keyboard stroke. <laughs> There's a couple of 1-800 numbers on there. Now. For sure, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I don't want to put my number out there. Yeah. Well, they know how to find you on social media. They can DM you or whatever, just like yeah. how I did, you know. Yeah, there's, there's lots yeah. of people that do it. It's, it's, it's amazing what um, the, the just inquisitiveness, mm -hmm. you know. Everyone goes through this. When, when, This has been a, a blessing, man, and I know we pretty much, we covered this the whole time we've been talking, but, you know, since you are on the I Am Necessary podcast, everybody gets the question point blank, and the question is, what makes you necessary? Say today might help a 
stranger that you don't know until tomorrow. 100%. man. All right, man. This has been just fantastic. And, uh, yeah, everything happens for a reason. So it's weird how we found each other, and now this is happening. So that's incredible. Uh, I thank you, man, so much. I know this is what you do, but I thank you so much for taking the time and, and just opening up to be on the show, man. I, I really appreciate it. Really appreciate it. Oh, man, I, I, I appreciate you, and, and I thank you for asking. And we'll see. I, I said some things publicly that I don't know. We'll see how that works out. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll help somebody. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. All right, man. No, it is what it is. This is, you know, the truth. And nothing, exactly. the truth is always just a beautiful thing, man. You know, so, yeah. So this is the I Am Necessary Podcast. This is your boy, Marcel. Um, yeah. Make sure when you're out there, you be needed and you be necessary. And if you made it wrong, make the time to make it right. And I'm out.